Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Belva Lockwood used her determination, her brains, and not unimportantly, the press, to break new ground for generations to come. First, as a lawyer arguing cases before the Supreme Court, and then as one of the first female candidates for the office of United States President in 1884. Surprise! This is Beckett. I'm by myself today. Last episode, Susan and I told you the story of Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president in the United States. But I'm here today to continue the story of Women's March to the White House with another candidate from long ago, Belva Lockwood, who ran for the office in 1884 and 1888. She appeared officially on ballots and was over the age of 35 when she ran, so in some minds, Belva, and not Victoria Woodhull, was the first female candidate for president. Let's go ahead and get into it. Belva Ann Bennett was born on October 24, 1830, in Royalton, New York, the second child of the five born to Lewis and Hannah Bennett. Her upbringing reminds me a lot of the sisters of Almanza Wilder in Farmer Boy. So they're on an upstate New York farm, expected to be quite responsible and self-reliant. She was sent to the local school whenever it was in session and, at 14, taking the exam for a teaching certificate and becoming a schoolmistress, just like Laura Ingalls, if you remember, who was 15 at the time she got her teaching certificate. It was part of a deal with her father, so she'd teach the summer term at the grammar school and used her wages to pay for tuition at a girl's high school. Otherwise, I think she wouldn't have gone. Belva wished for college, and there were a few places she could have gone, but Papa absolutely forbid it. That is enough school for a girl. So she followed the expected and traditional path for young women, and at 18, she married Uriah McNall, age 22, who farmed and also operated a sawmill. And here's what Belva said about marriage. Quote, marriage to an ordinary woman is the end of her personality or of her individual thought and action forever after. She's represented by him and becomes a sort of domestic non-entity. It's not very rosy. She had a daughter named Laura and kept up her reading and wrote papers for club meetings and little articles for the paper. And that might have been where her story ended had Uriah not died when Belva was only 22. 22, with a three-year-old daughter to support. Well, thank goodness I have that teaching experience to draw on. So she applied for a teaching position, and then she found out that the district in question openly paid male teachers more than double what they gave the female teachers. They offered her $8 a week, which is about $250, but he is getting 20 to her 8 And the rationale was, well, he's going to save for a house or support a wife and family. You're just marking time till you get married. You're just handing your wages over to your father anyway, or buying bonnets. It's just extra money. It's not household money. Um, Yeah, actually, it is the household income, not that it's any of your business. You know what I mean? So she didn't take that job. She made a plan. Laura went to live with Grandma and Grandpa. Belva sold some land that Uriah had owned and the mill, which may in fact have killed him. I think he died in a sawmill accident. And she set out to get a degree at what was then called Genesee Wesleyan University, but it's now Syracuse. Pretty famous. Her concentrations were science, math, history, the U.S. Constitution, and political economy. And you know how it is when you get to college, you get exposed to new beliefs, concepts you hadn't been aware of there in your small town life and what was swirling around upstate New York during the 1850s. Abolition, temperance, 
and Equal Rights for Women, the big three. We talk often on this show about how these movements intertwined and moved forward together and held each other back. Um, These, all of these, became another area of deep study and passion, along with a law class she had taken. She was away from her daughter this whole time, by the way. I think it was just a matter of having to make some hard decisions for the greater good, I think. At 27... Belva graduated from college, and with her new credentials, she became the girls' division head of the Lockport Union School. In this scenario, there were seven elementary schools and three middle schools and one high school called the Union School. Most of you will probably recognize this model, though not so much here in Kansas City anymore. It's really sad. Where the first question is, where are you sending your kids to school? That is infuriating and a subject for another day. Belva met Susan B. Anthony, who shared her views on expanded education for girls and her belief in equality of opportunity for women in general. This is where the two great minds met very early in her career. Belva introduced some radical ideas during her term at the Union School. Calisthenics for girls. I don't know what that is. You say, sure, you know, you do. Jumping jacks, setups, push-ups, stretches, chin-ups on the bar, all the things I remember from the president's physical fitness program from the 1970s, which, no certificate for me, I still cannot do one pull-up. For people used to their girls maybe walking two by two for exercise, all decorous, all this grunting and sweating was hair raising. You see it all over women's literature. I'm I'm reminded of Joe March from Little Women, who says she's too old to run at 16, for example. Too bad, you know, healthy minds need strong bodies to walk around in. She's like the end. There's no more discussion. And public speaking. When are the girls ever going to need that? Confidence never goes amiss her point. She carried her point, in fact. She continued from this radical start to insist on practical and equal education for girls. What if they're widowed? What if they are put in dire straits and they need it? They should be educated to be independent human beings. But though she was well-respected and quite good at her job, again, she was faced with gross inequities in pay compared to her male colleagues. So she left for a couple of stints as headmistress slash principal, I don't know the official name, of two private girls' academies. And right at the end of the Civil War, the 35-year-old Belva moved to Washington, D.C. Her daughter, Laura, was away at boarding high school, and Belva thought she'd move closer to where the action was. Equal rights was really igniting a fire within her, not just her. I mean, it is sizzling all over the Northeast, especially. With her sister, with the epic name of Inferno, she opened a school for girls to keep the lights on, you know, uh, McNall's Female Academy, which less than a year later was simply McNall's Academy because in a stroke of radicalism, Belva turned her school into one of the first fully coeducational high schools in the country. She was one of the founding members of the Universal Franchise Association, which was working openly in the public space to get a constitutional amendment passed to get women the vote. And when she was excluded from any political meetings because she was a woman, she found a workaround and became a credentialed journalist, a member of the National Women's Press Association, and just walked in with her notebook and pencil, to which I say, if the rules are that dumb, find a way around. (laughs) The people she met during her work on this issue, especially the journalists, uh, her network, I should say, today, I guess, shaped how her life began to run from now on. At 38, Belva married Ezekiel Lockwood, a dentist and Baptist preacher who was 67 years old. That is a 29-year age gap, if the math is eluding you. But more importantly, more importantly, he seems like quite the modern fellow. You want to be a lawyer? 
here's the books you need. Community organizing, where do I show up? He was all for women's rights and really welcomed the kind of equal partnership, both intellectual and financial, that they had together. He was a pretty rare bird, I must say, in this time. In addition to the school, which her husband helped her with, she had all kinds of other jobs. She was the person in charge for booking the halls, the lecture halls. And of course, you can put in whoever you want. And a lot of temperance and women's rights issues got their forums in the halls that she rented out. She also worked in claims court, kind of um, as an agent, particularly in the area of civil war pensions, which is a legal department. You didn't need to be a member of the bar to practice this kind of law and be an advocate to get back pay and that kind of thing. She wrote and delivered speeches on women's rights. She wrote articles on education for women. She was a master of the press, inside and out. People really liked and respected her. She somehow found time to have her second baby, another little girl named Jessie, who I'm sorry to say died before her second birthday, which during this time was common enough, but is still very sad. Belva wanted to become a credentialed lawyer. The most traditional path was to read law with an experienced lawyer for a period of years as an apprentice or assistant, but no man was willing to risk his own career to take her onto his staff in that way. Although there was somebody that was willing to tutor her and uh, help her study kind of in the background. So that's useful. So law school must be the thing, right? Columbia Law School had just opened. They needed some students, right? And hey, the president is an old friend of my husband's. So she applied and was told that, no, thank you, ma'am. You would be too much of a distraction for all the young men. Seriously? Seriously? So at 40, she applied to National University Law School, which did accept Belva and 14 other women, including the now adult daughter, Laura McNall. Super progressive, you think? Ah, but get this. The lectures were co-ed, but the recitations, where the ladies actually had to speak with their own mouths in front of people, those were female only. Nevertheless, the male students raised such a stink about attending classes with women that the school sort of retracted their offer and said, well, we will teach you, I guess, but only in a separate program, ladies only. There was great mockery, it seems like, and a lot of indelicate speech about the lady students, and I'm sorry to say that most of them bailed almost immediately. Laura and a couple of friends stuck it out for a year, but by the end of the two-year program, only Belva and one other woman finished the program at all. <sighs> okay, so we're done, right? Hand us our paper. Not so fast. The dudes don't want you to be on the stage with them at graduation. It would devalue their degree to get it at the same time as you. So we're realists, right? Fine. Just hand my diploma to me. Hand it to me. Actually, you haven't done enough work for your degree, so we're not going to give it to you. This is a quote from her that I think is quite useful to put into a situation like this. Defeats are always advantageous if they only bend the spirit and do not break it. Yes, well, they bent her because without this diploma, she couldn't be admitted to the bar. And without that, she couldn't really practice law, except small claims and the advocate things that she was already doing, not the constitutional law she'd been studying for all this time. Twice and before two different committees, she took the three day examination and it got put in a drawer. Frustrating. You got to think, how are you going to overcome this? How are you going to overcome this? She went off on a canvassing and public speaking tour for Horace Greeley, who was running for president. And 
did a great job, wrote lots of articles for newspapers, including one called The Women of Washington, which was pretty much a pointed reminder to everyone that there are intelligent women just itching to get into the public realm, and they needed to be given an opportunity. Several judges notified her that they themselves would recognize her credentials anyway, so she's welcome to come argue cases in their courts. She was really very well thought of professionally by anyone who could just get past that pesky fact that she was a woman. So she brought a lawsuit in one of these friendly courts, and the novelty factor alone made her a widely reported on figure. And unlike our old friend Victoria Woodhull, digging around in Belva's background unearthed a nose on a grindstone, mostly. And the indefatigable Miss Lockwood, as the press called her, had one last Hail Mary to throw. The current president, Ulysses S. Grant, was, in name, the president of the National University Law School. So she sent him a tartly worded letter asserting her right to receive her diploma and demanding it from him. Just a little note to the president. (laughs) That's some nerve. That's some nerve. But guess what? No official note back ever from the president of the United States. But ta-da! Within a week, the chancellor presented her with her long-awaited diploma. And she was admitted to the District Bar Association a few days later. Responses from the judges there ranged from, well, we'll treat you just like a man. Fair enough. Check. That's all I want. Two, I don't think lady lawyers will be a success. So bring as many as you want. They're all going to fail. But you know what? Who cared? Publicity and word of mouth got her all the clients she could handle. But when she showed up at a different court, a higher court, to which she had a case that had been referred, there was shock from that bunch. You're a woman. So, and they actually recessed court for a week to think about that. Came back. You're a married woman. Ah, you know, KG Belva had brought her husband. I'm here with my husband's permission, she said sweetly. You got to do what you got to do, ladies. Seriously, fight on their terms. But they had to recess a week again. And they came back and they're like, mm, I don't really think so. They said, quote, a woman is without legal capacity to take the office of attorney. So she had to hire a male attorney as a proxy to present her information to the court. I think that's very shameful. She also said he took three days to say what she could have done in an hour, and I don't think she was very happy with his performance. So she appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is where you have to go after this court, and she really examined the requirements, which are any attorney in good standing before the highest court of any state or territory for the space of three years shall be admitted to this court when presented by a member of the bar. Fine. Fair enough. She timed her appeal so she'd have three years by the time it got there. There was no mention in that language of the words man or male. She thought she had a simple open and shut case on the face of it, but she's no dummy. And she's quite familiar with weaseling, and they had blocked a similar case the year before. But still, when the Supreme Court came back with the following decision, quote, as this court knows no English precedent for the admission of women to the bar, it declines to admit unless there shall be a more extended public opinion or special legislation. Okay, her first response was no English precedent. Queen Eleanor, Queen Elizabeth and Countess of Pembroke, who sat on the bench with the other judges, Queen Victoria for a more timely scenario. Her second response was, more practically, special legislation, is it? So, 
Enter a bill she wrote called H.R. 1077, brought before Congress with nearly identical wording to the requirements, you know, any attorney in good standing of the court for three years, blah, blah, blah. Although it did add the sentence of good moral character, which made me wonder if it was directly referencing Victoria Woodhull. I don't know why you would put that in there otherwise. So I don't know if that was a poke to her predecessor or not. So it helps to have connections, and Belva did. There were plenty of men who were impressed with her legal work in that district court, which had no problem with her. Two times the bill didn't pass in Congress. The third time it passed the House, but stalled at the last minute in the Senate. It got held over for another session. The newspapermen, remember, colleagues and friends of hers took up her case and the PR. And she said, I have been interested in many bills and have often appeared before committees of the Senate and the House, but this was by far the strongest lobbying that I have ever performed. And I just want you guys to note the casualness of the words many committees. I don't know if you remember from our Victoria Woodhull episode, but she went first and Everyone's brain probably shut down. And now we're at the point where she can say, Belva can, I've presented at many committees. I just think that was a giant step forward. And that she stood on the back of Victoria Woodhull for. So Belva called on people. She wrote letters. She pulled in favors and practically bit her fingernails off. But in February 1879, President Rutherford B. Hayes signed her bill into law. The next month, she was admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. She is the first woman authorized to argue cases before the Supreme Court. So therefore, all the lower courts had to admit her too. It was a victory. Her business was doing absolutely great. She specialized in pension and back pay cases, and she also worked toward widows' property rights and custody rights, but she sure did everything. Her daughter and son-in-law worked in her office in the house, kind of to the front and side. She had other family members and actually some wards that were not related to her at all living in the house and also a niece that she eventually adopted. And you know, I'm sorry to say that Mr. Lockwood, husband, Mr. Lockwood died. So there is a bit of sorrow there. And I do feel sorry. You know, goodbye, Ezekiel. You were an awesome stand-up guy. And it is not often we get to hail the supportive spouse on this show. So a little salute for Ezekiel. We will not see him again. So Belva never stopped working toward equal rights for women, although she shared with Victoria Woodhull that her thought that voting would follow equality and not the other way around. She lobbied the Republican Party bigwigs during the 1880 and again in 1884 election to include a woman's suffrage plank in their platform. And when they declined, Belva started to look askance at women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton that they were supporting the Republican candidate at all. And she said, we shall never have rights until we take them, nor respect until we command it. And so she was nominated as the presidential candidate for the Equal Rights Party with a woman newspaper publisher named Marietta Snow as her vice president running mate. Their platform was a wide ranging thing, which included such things as equal opportunity for women to hold public office at all levels, including the Supreme Court, balanced marriage and divorce laws, temperance, 
That's the one I don't agree with. Citizenship for all Native Americans and a policy of peace versus aggression. In addition, very importantly, I think, for a window into her true feelings, she publicly said as part of her platform that she felt like the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which limited or prevented immigration from China, was unchristian and unconstitutional. She was in favor of a more free immigration policy. She got a lot of pushback from the suffrage community. You are subjecting us to ridicule just as we're making progress. She is as respectable as can be, people. I, I don't know if there was still PTSD from the drama of Victoria Woodhull's campaign. Belva was even accused of running as a mere PR stunt to get more business for her own firm. But she saw it as the first practical movement in the history of women's suffrage. Which makes me wonder if Belva also discarded Victoria Woodhull as the first presidential candidate also. Hmm. So newspapers kind of either treated her candidacy as a stunt, calling her such things as Old Lady Lockwood. Uh, they were generally disrespectful, but honestly, they were kind of generally disrespectful to most presidential candidates. So I guess I could say she was treated fairly-ish. Although there were lots of cartoons, I'll put some on the Pinterest, that were pretty non-PC. There was one where you could lift her skirt and a male candidate was hiding there. Um, she thought, though, that a campaign cartoon depicting her was a prized possession. It's kind of like when you get to be in a crossword puzzle, like you've made it. So she felt like if she's well enough known to be lampooned in Puck magazine, then she kind of has made it and is doing the right thing. Uh, I have to say that Susan B. Anthony in some behavior that disappoints me a little, said that Belva Lockwood spoke too much like a man and had dyed her hair. Such is the way of all strong-minded women. I am very disappointed in that. I'm sorry to say. That is not what I expect of Susan B. Anthony at all. But election day came, and even though there was some controversy about tossed away and not counted votes in a time when women couldn't cast a vote, although they could in three territories, but these territories didn't vote in that election, so that didn't help her. But even though there were no women votes in this election, she got nearly 5,000 official votes. No electoral votes, so that's a bummer. Although the electors of Indiana left a, oh, haha, I was going to say jerky note. I actually wrote jokey note, but it was jerky too. As a joke, they left a note. We're going to give all of our um, electoral votes to Belva Lockwood because she's so fabulous on blah, blah, blah. It was like a stupid jokey note between them, but they left it on the table and Belva actually seized hold of it and kind of pressed a little bit to have those votes counted as her electoral victories because her goal, of course, was not to get the presidency. She knew that would never happen. Her goal was to get one electoral vote. And I'm sorry to say she didn't get any real ones. So even after she didn't make it, there were parades of men dressed as Mother Hubbard, an old character with a bun and an old calico dress and a broom. Ah, such comedy. What passed for comedy in these days? I don't know. They called her campaign the Busted Sideshow. But you know what? Belva Lockwood saw this as simply the price of doing business. You're the first one, in her mind, you're the first one, you're going to get a certain amount of smear campaign at you. Doesn't bother me. She's so level. She's so level-headed. She became very famous, very famous, and parlayed this into both an extremely lucrative public speaking career 
and serious involvement in human rights and peace activism and women's suffrage. She did run again in 1888 to absolutely no fanfare, and as far as I can tell, no official votes. So weird. I guess I guess the novelty factor had worn off, and there really was no support from women in this endeavor, which was, of course, a bummer, but she had a lot going on, a lot going for her. She won a giant case, a multi-million dollar case that she argued on behalf of the Eastern Cherokee people against the United States government, for example. She's not working on traffic ticket cases here. She served on the Nobel Peace Prize nominating committee. She was a member of the Universal Peace Union and a delegate to peace conventions all over Europe. When she was 63, she headed the National Convention of Women Lawyers and two hundred women attended. I mean, look around. Look around at your influence in this room. If that's not satisfaction, I don't know what is. She wrote treatises on eliminating capital punishment, establishing public defenders for the poor, and of course, equal rights for women, even though the official suffrage organizations had largely just told her, you know, talk to the hand, we're over you. It's sort of a shame they couldn't reconcile themselves to her kind of power. Belva, and Victoria Woodhill shared the view that women in the movement, quote, talk too much instead of acting. She was so well thought of by several presidents that she was a trusted counselor on a number of issues. And in 1909, when she was 79, Syracuse University granted her an honorary doctorate of law. Belva Lockwood died on May 19, 1917, of, quote, maladies consistent with the onset of old age. I don't know what that is exactly. She was 81. Three years she died before the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Her life. So many firsts. So much drive. So much determination. I wish I had half of it. And we wanted to make sure that you all knew about her. Because honestly, if you ask 100 people, 98 of them will have no idea who you're talking about. Might even be higher. So let me give you two books to start you on your exploration of Belva Lockwood. One is a children's book called Ballots for Belva, The True Story of a Woman's Race for the Presidency by Sudipta Barden Qualen, and a biography I liked called Belva Lockwood, The Woman Who Would Be President by Jill Norgren. I'll leave you with this. When asked if she thought a woman would ever be president, this is what Belva said. I look to see women in the United States Senate and the House of Representatives. If a woman demonstrates that she is fitted to be president, she will someday occupy the White House. It will be entirely on her own merits, however. No movement will place her there simply because she is a woman. It will come if she proves herself fit for the position. Thanks for listening. Bye! Keep on the path and I'll be there on the path and I'll be there Even rules should seem fair Keep on the path and I'll be there If you take it easy If you take it slow Find out the hard way Long way to go If you take it easy If you take it slow Find out the hard way, long way to go. Keep by the fire and you'll stay warm. Keep 
by the fire and you'll stay warm Hold those thoughts and the shapes will form Keep by the fire and you'll stay warm If you take it easy, if you take it slow Find out the hard way Take it slow